to get into the Word of God. So I want you to come with me, please, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. Romans, the fifth chapter. And just one verse, verse 20. So Romans 5, 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. Now in Romans chapter 5, the apostle is trying by contrast to show the difference uh, between law and grace, between Adam and Christ, between Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience, between Adam's offense and Christ's gift, between Adam's trespass and Christ's righteousness, between death reigning in us through Adam, between that and Christ's life causing us to reign in this life. So there are lots and lots of contrasts in Romans chapter 5. And further by way of contrast, he says these words, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Sin with all its cunning, with all its temptations, with all its ability to rack and to ruin and to bring devastation and disappointment, and fear and dread and doubt, Paul says actually it's no match for the amazing grace of God. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now the two words and terms that he uses for abounded and much more abounded are different. When he says where sin abounded, the word is plenonazo, plenonazo, and that means increased, multiplied, abounded, something that's expanding and growing. In fact, the first part of verse 20 that we read shows that clearly. It says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, or that sin might abound. Now, that's a strange thing. The law entered that sin might abound. What does that mean? Well, it means a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it means this. It means the Apostle Paul saying that when God gave the law, suddenly men began to realize and understand fully that they had sinned. They had a, a fresh appreciation of what sin was because there was now a standard set. There was a law given. There was a benchmark made that men could measure themselves by. And if they would break the law, they could see that clearly. The Apostle Paul, again, further in, in chapter 7, 
goes on to say this. For instance, in 7.7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. And so, first of all, it showed men very clearly that they were sinners, that they sinned. So they could no longer say, well, I didn't know, because now there's a law, and they could see the law, and if they broke the law, they knew that. <coughs> Excuse me. But the thing about human nature, fallen human nature, sinful human nature, is such that it wants to break the law, that it wants to flout the rules. And this is, this is why, we, for instance, we have police forces, we have magistrates, we have courts, we have prisons, because sinful human nature actually wants to break the law. It flouts rules. I mean, there's, there's a very tiny part of that, I suppose you could say, where you see a sign, wet paint, do not touch. What are you tempted to do? You're tempted to touch it. There's something within us that wants to break a law, that wants to flout a rule. And so when, even when the law was given, and it was clear what, we were, what men were doing. They still wanted to do it, even more so, because they wanted to break that. They didn't want laws confining them and restricting them and limiting them, because we see that today. We say, well, let's talk about somebody who lives an awful lifestyle, and they live a terrible, sinful lifestyle, and people say, oh, they, they were a free spirit. In other words, they didn't want anything encroaching on their lifestyle. They wanted anything to hem them in or to restrict them. They just wanted to do everything with impunity, break all the laws. So God was showing them clearly. By the way, the main thing the law was to do in, in Galatians 3.24 tells us was to be our schoolmaster to point us to Christ, to show us how undone we were, to show us how sinful we were, to show us how now, even no matter how much we even tried to keep the law, we never could fully keep the law. And so we were totally undone. So what are we going to do? We're totally lost and undone. And it pointed us to Christ. See, it Spurgeon says the law was like the, the black sheepdog that got the sheep to go to the shepherd. And the law was to do that as well. And so the law came in and sin increased. There's no doubt about it that sin is increasing today. There's no question about that. That Satan is going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There's no question that it's increasing, that he has come uh, to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Paul says where sin increases, when the devil is doing his worst, then it says grace does much more abound. And the word he uses there is a different word. It's hyperperishu. And hyperperishu is a word that means more exceedingly, super abundantly, overflowing. So one of the words he uses for abounds means more. The other one means much more. One of the words he uses means increasingly. The other means exceedingly. One means abundantly. The other means superabundantly. And so, no matter what the enemy does, no matter what he throws against us, no matter how hard and difficult he may try to make life for each of us, God has got a superabundance of his grace to overcome that. 
Amen? So no matter what you face in life, no matter what life throws at you, no matter what sin has caused, there is a superabundance of God's grace to be able to overcome that. Paul in one of his scriptures says that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power of God, of course, which works in us. Exceedingly abundantly. Here's how some different translations and paraphrases puts Romans 5.20. The Moffat translation puts it this way. Law slipped in to aggravate the trespass. Sin increased, but grace surpassed it far. And then the New Living uh, Translation puts it this way. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. And then the Weymouth Translation puts it this way. Now law was brought in later on so that transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace has overflowed. And then I think the Amplified, I think, even puts it the best. But then law came in only to expand and increase the trespass, making it more apparent and exciting opposition. But where sin increased and abounded, God's grace, His unmerited favor, has surpassed it and increased the more and superabounded. So are you getting the picture this morning? Even though sin increases, and even though the enemy seems to be increasing in his plots and his plans and his attacks and his ways, yet in spite of all of that, Paul says that God's grace is greater than all of that. It's superabundant. What mountain are you facing today? What obstacles, what stumbling blocks, what seemingly unbeatable, implacable foe has come against you? What hardships, what setbacks, what reversals, what challenges are you struggling with today? God has got a superabundance of grace to cover that. We are never without the grace of God. There's such strength, there's such help, there's such confidence in the grace of God. The bigger the test, the bigger the testimony. The greater the challenge, the greater the champion you'll be when you win. The severer the trial, the sweeter the triumph. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, He's speaking in another context, but the principle is the same. He says, God is able to make all grace abound towards you. <laughs> not only is God's grace in abundance, not only is it abounding in abundance, but it's abounding towards you. In the midst of your need or your lack or your battle or your struggle, God's grace is abounding towards you in abundance. It's almost as Paul can hardly think of any more superlatives to use when he's thinking about the grace of God. That you having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. 
Do you remember in 2 Corinthians 12, where the Apostle Paul had that wonderful experience? He said he was caught up into the third heaven. He was given visions and revelations that were so great that he could not even tell another soul on earth. And he says, lest I should be exalted above measure. There was a thorn in the flesh given to me that buffeted him. Remember how he prayed three times to be relieved of the buffeting? Whatever it was, we're not sure. Don't think it was anything to do with sickness. People speculated that he was had glaucoma, he had a humpback, he had bendy legs, it was crippled, every, every kind of thing imaginable. And the Bible doesn't say any of those things. But whatever this messenger of Satan was, probably some demonic spirit, that everywhere he went stirred up people and situations against him. Every city, every town he went to, somebody came out against him. Somebody struck at him. Remember he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord reward him according to his works. And so he was buffeted everywhere he went. And being a human being like the rest of us, he prayed three times, Lord, I don't want this. I don't like this. I've had enough of this. I'm tired of this. Lord, just give me respite. I, I, I don't want any more buffeting. And the Lord says, no. But he says, my grace will be sufficient. For my strength will be made perfect in your weakness. In your weakest moments, Paul, when you think, I can't take any more of this, he says, look for my grace. Look for my strength coming in, lifting you above what you're going through. It's tough. If the apostle Paul prayed three times to be relieved, you can be sure it was tough. I mean, he was a tough guy. He took a lot of stick, as we say here. He took a lot of stuff. But there was something about that that he just felt he just couldn't do anymore. And he prayed and God says, no, I'm afraid you're stuck with it. But you don't need to worry about it because my grace is sufficient. It is more than enough. It literally means that. It's more than enough. Just when you think you've come to the end of my grace, there's much more than you ever imagined. There is a super abundance of it. So this is the same man that's writing. Romans 5.20. When he says, grace does much more abound, he knew what he was talking about. He had come through some things. He had faced a lot of hardships, even to the point where he didn't want any more of it. So he wasn't speaking in some kind of a vacuum. He wasn't living in a bubble. It wasn't just preaching. He'd come through it. And he says, God's grace is sufficient. It's absolutely more than enough. A couple of things Paul went through was imprisonment. And while he was in prison, he made good use of his time there. Uh, he began to write and he wrote some what are called prison epistles. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon. Wonderful books. Even while he was in prison, he was, but it, it was kind of house arrest he was under. And he had access to people coming to visit him and 
And uh, even though he was, he was restricted in many ways, he just couldn't go. He was under house arrest, but he was able to write and so forth. And then after a time, he was released. And when he got released, uh, he wrote to his, probably the, the closest person on earth to him, Timothy, young man, young man that he had mentored, uh, a young man that he had left in charge of, of the work in, in Ephesus, Paul has spent three years in Ephesus. You can read in Acts 19 uh, the tremendous work that he did in Ephesus, that, that great Roman Asian city, the, the capital of Asia. And a uh, fantastic city, massive city. Uh, reckon there could have been a million people in it. It's a big city. And, uh, but a city totally given over to idolatry. Uh, the worship of Diana, Diana of the Ephesians, it's one of the seven wonders of the world, the great statue they made of this licentious Diana of the Ephesians that they worshipped. And, and in the midst of all of that, Paul spent three years and raised up a great church in Ephesus. Now, whenever we think of church, uh, uh, we're not thinking of, of a building like this where, where people meet once a week. They didn't have any buildings other than their homes. Uh, and, and so it was quite scattered throughout the city, but it was a big, thriving, growing, successful church. And Paul had to leave, and then he got imprisoned, and then he got out, and so he was anxious to, 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 to help young Timothy because this young man that he left in charge, he, he was a great young man, he had every confidence in him, but he, he seemed to be a weaker nature uh, and certainly struggled a bit. He, he tummy upset all the time and, and he was young and, and it seemed to be that people didn't respect his youth, his youthfulness and, and all the rest. He said all kinds of problems in this church and there was lack of discipline and there was problems with women in the church, there's problems with false teachers coming in and a lack of organization and so, so Paul writes uh, to Timothy uh, his first letter to encourage him and to remind him of the grace of God. Uh, and then he writes to another young pastor called Titus. Uh, and Titus is not in Ephesus. He's not in a big city church. Uh, he's in Crete, the island of Crete. And there's a number of, of fellowships, could we call them, scattered throughout Crete. And, and, and Titus was a stronger man. Uh, he, he was a guy that got involved when it came to the collection uh, that the Corinthians had to do for the saints at Jerusalem, and Paul put him in there because he, he could deal with those Corinthians. They were a rough bunch to deal with, but Titus was a strong personality. But even he was struggling uh, because the, the, the Cretans, <laughs> Paul quotes one of their prophets, one of their poets, I should say, who said the Cretans are lazy beasts. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they had a bad reputation in those days, the Cretans. Everybody knew about them. They were fighters and bad and just bad, ill reputation. And, and Titus, he was stuck in the middle of it and he had to deal with all that. And there was false teachers there and, and all kinds of problems in the church. And it was just... And so, so Paul's writing to these two pastors. He writes three letters. First Timothy, second Timothy. I'll tell you about that in a moment. And then Titus. And and as he writes to them, he says, grace and mercy and peace be unto you. He always wrote grace and peace. That was always what he wrote in his letters. Uh, and that was a nice salutation. Uh, grace was a use that the Greeks, the Greeks loved the word grace, charis. It meant favor and blessing. And when they would meet each other in the street, they would say, charis, favor, blessing. 
that was a lovely greeting. And Paul used that to do with the grace of God, the unmerited fear for God. Uh, so when he write grace to them, that would be speaking to the, the Greek people and then even say peace unto you. That was Shalom was a great Hebrew word which meant favor and blessing and peace and so forth. But when he, when he wrote to these two pastors, he, he put mercy between that, grace, mercy, and peace because they really, really needed help. <laughs> and they needed grace and they needed mercy. They needed everything. And, uh, and so he, he writes to them these words, and, uh, and to Timothy, in 1 Timothy uh, 1 and 2, he said, uh, To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God and from our Father and Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, and then in First uh, Timothy 1, 12 to 14, I'll just skip some of this. He says, And I thank Jesus Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is encouraging this young pastor again, even about his own life. He says, look at the mercy, look at the grace God had for me who was the most undeserving, the chief of sinners. And yet God was abundant in His grace and mercy to me. And He's going to be abundant in His grace and mercy to you in this tough task that you have got, this growing church that you've got to oversee with all of its problems and all of its lack of discipline and all these false teachers. You know, one scripture Paul says, whenever I leave, and he's talking about the church in Ephesus, he says, I know that grievous will shall enter in, not sparing the flock. And so this is what this young man had to deal with. And he was a young man, and he was struggling dealing with this. No question about that. So Paul's encouraging him. And then he encourages Titus. And you can read that little book of Titus. He encourages him again with grace and mercy because and he'd got his own problems to deal with too. But then Paul now is in prison the second time. By the way, the church at Ephesus was probably about eight years old when he wrote that first letter. And it was still growing. It was still a strong church, with, even though it had problems. But now he's, he's arrested again. He's put in prison a second time. This time he's not under house arrest. This time he's under trial. And he knows he's awaiting execution. Now there's a, an intervening period of about five years between First and Second Timothy, and something dramatic happened within those five years that changed everything for the church all over the Roman Empire. Nero, that brutal, evil man, set fire to Rome. Even though he was brutal and evil, he was a great builder. And he deliberately set fire to his own city that he'd raise it to the ground that he could build it up again in his style the way he wanted and it caused such a furore in the whole city that he decided to take the flag of himself and he blamed the Christians. So he blamed the Christians and then they began to get arrested and punished and put to death. And he made Christianity illegal, illegal in the Roman Empire. And so the waves of persecution that went out from Rome, they would round up Christians, all the Christians in Rome, and they would persecute them even unto death. And then waves of that persecution would go to every part of the Roman Empire, including where Ephesus was. So the next time Paul writes to Timothy, the church has changed. 
Because this time they're under great persecution. And this time people are leaving because not everybody wanted the persecution. And Paul's encouraging the whole firm to stand fast. And Paul's encouraging to teach the Word of God. Paul's encouraging them to be strong in the Lord and all this because the church is getting shaken to its foundations. So it goes from a thriving, growing big church to now it's being rattled and shaken and persecuted. And Paul still has the same message. The grace of God is enough. The grace and the mercy of God will get you through if you stand firm, if you hold on. Paul's writing from prison and he sends for Timothy because Timothy is the dearest person on earth to him. We don't know if Timothy ever reached him before he was executed, but he sent for him. Remember what he says, I want you to bring my cloak because he's now in a dark, damp dungeon. I want you to bring the books, but especially the parchments, which is probably the Old Testament scriptures. He says, bring those three things and hurry up. He says, come before winter. I need you here. And he, he put somebody else in charge of that situation. Whether he ever got, we don't know. But Paul, here's Paul, knowing he's going to die, <laughs> knowing that his days are numbered, knowing that he's awaiting execution. And he wants a wee bit of comfort. He wants the person that's the closest to him on earth just to come, just to be with him one more time. That would bring him some comfort. But he talks to him about the grace of God. He says, the grace of God was sufficient in my life. It was superabundant in my life. It will be superabundant in your life too. So even in ministry, even when we're called, even when we're doing God's will and God's work, there's always going to be situations. There's always going to be problems. There's always going to be difficulties that we have to rise above. And it's not easy. We're all human. We've got feelings and emotions and hurts. But we look to the grace of God. We say, God, your grace is more than enough. If it wasn't for your grace, I couldn't do this. I couldn't stick this. I couldn't do this. But with your grace, glory to God, I'm going to continue. I'm going to go on. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to overcome this because your grace is super abundant. Glory to God. Amen. Amen. Then John the Baptist, speaking of Christ, in John 1.16, he says, And of his fullness we all have received, and grace for grace. New Living Translation puts it this way, From his abundance we all have received one gracious blessing after another. And that's the wonderful thing about when you know the Lord and you serve God the best you know how, is that no matter what happens, you always know God's got something better for you in front. <laughs> Even the greatest blessing you got today is nothing to what God's got compared to tomorrow. It's grace upon grace upon grace. The Weymouth translation puts that this way, for he it is from whose fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. <laughs> we'll never outdo the grace of God. We'll never outrun the grace of God. It's greater, it's bigger, it's more powerful than we can ever imagine it to be. You know, the more you study grace, and just when you think that you've understood everything there is about it, you haven't, because it's bigger and better than you can ever imagine. 
<clears throat> you don't need to turn to this unless you absolutely want to. But in Zechariah chapter 4, there is the story of the rebuilding of the, the temple, Solomon's temple that had been destroyed. And after a period of time, a long period of time, a program was set in order to rebuild it. And so the rebuilding had started. And after a while, it had ground to a halt. There were setbacks, disappointments, pressures, stresses, troubles. And after a while, apathy set in, and the people who were supposed to build it, they let it go, and they started building their own houses instead. And that went on for years. And then God spoke very clearly, very powerfully, to a man called Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was like a civil leader and told him to get this finished, get it done. And the high priest at that time was Joshua, not the Joshua that, that, that took over from Moses, but Joshua the high priest. And the two prophets at that time was Zechariah and Haggai. And so you have the civil leader, you have the spiritual head, the high priest, then you have the two prophets who would encourage. And so between them, this temple started to rise. But again, it was fraught with difficulty, with setbacks, with disappointments, with troubles and pressures. Anything worthwhile doing for God, you're going to meet opposition and trouble and difficulty. It just doesn't come easy. If it came easy, everybody would be doing it. But everybody's not doing it. And everybody's not sticking at it either. So, it's being built, it's being repaired, it's being, now it's just about finished. And God comes to <clears throat> the prophet here in chapter 4 of Zechariah. Now the angel who talked with me came and wakened me as a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold and a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes, two the seven lamps, two olive trees are by it, one on the right of the bowl, one on the other on the left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now listen to this. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth a capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. That's a strange message. Of all the things to shout... Who are you, mountain? How dare you? Who are you to come in opposition against me, building this work for God? It shall become a plain before Zerubbabel. It's going to disappear. God's going to deal with it. Then when it's finished, and you put the final capstone on it, here's what to do. Shout to it, grace, Grace unto it. In other words, acknowledge my grace. Acknowledge it was the grace of God that got this completed. 
It wasn't just your skills or your ability or your strong will to do it. It was my grace in you that completed this job. See, that's a valuable lesson that all of us need to understand and learn. Anything we're ever going to do for the kingdom of God, it will only be by the grace of God. No matter how good and how talented and much ability you've got or anything or willpower you have, it's all done by the grace of God. Now that's good for us to remember and to know because when you're struggling, when you feel you can't do it, when you feel I can't get this done, then you say, but wait a minute, it's the grace of God in me that's going to do this. And so you look to the grace of God rather than to yourself. Are you still with me in this? All right. So what are you facing? What difficulty have you got to overcome? What's the pressure you're under? What's causing you the stress? What is it that seems to be ground to a halt in your life that you thought you were going to build for the kingdom? Shout grace to it. Grace to it. Grace of God. And ask for the grace of God in your life. Because there's a superabundance of God's grace. <clears throat> He's never going to run out of His grace. And whatever you're facing today, whatever you need, there's enough grace. There's more than enough grace. It is sufficient for you to get through what you're going through. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. Let me finish with this. Without a question, see it, Spurgeon was the prince of preachers. In the 1800s, he built a megachurch in London. I mean a megachurch. Massive building. Man preached to thousands and thousands with no microphones or fancy gadgets that we've got. I know how he did it. He must have had a great booming voice. After every Sunday, his messages was put into print and they were sold. Millions of them all over the world. He's, he's volumes and volumes of books just a, a unique servant of God. But not the one that was so super spiritual and almost superman that he hadn't feelings or emotions or hurts or pains because he did many times. As many times he felt like giving up and walking away. He really did and said it many times. And here's a little story, a true story. One of his darkest moments it says, when Spurgeon was riding home one evening after a heavy day's work and feeling wearied and depressed, and he'd have moments of great blackness come over his life, by the way. He called them preacher's fainting fits. <laughs> that was an old quaint way of saying I really, really felt really, really bad. <laughs> so after a heavy day's work and he's weary and depressed, the verse came to him that we just read there. My grace is sufficient for thee. And he immediately compared himself to a little fish in the Thames. Apprehensive, lest drinking so many pints of water, the river, and from the river each day it might, he might drink the Thames dry. And hearing Father Thames say to it, Drink away, little fish, my stream is sufficient for thee. Then he thought of a little mouse in the granaries of Joseph in Egypt. Afraid, lest it might, by daily consumption of the corn it needed, exhaust the supplies and starve to death. And Joseph came along and sensing its fear said, Cheer up, little mouse, my granaries are sufficient for thee. Or again he thought of himself as a man climbing some high mountain to reach its lofty summit and dreading lest he might exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere. When the Creator himself said, Breathe away, O man, and fill thy lungs ever, my atmosphere is sufficient for thee. Then he told his congregation, for the first time in my life, 
I experienced what Abraham felt when he fell upon his face and laughed. <laughs> Such joy entered his soul when he suddenly realized, no matter how I feel, no matter what I'm facing, God's grace is sufficient. It's more than enough to get me through and to take me over. Amen? Let's pray. So what is it today that you need to speak grace to? Maybe you need to shout it. Maybe the enemy has been shouting in your ear all week, condemning, making you feel a total failure, useless, worthless. Speak words of grace. Say, Lord, I thank you for your grace today. Where would I be without it? I can do nothing without it. Undeserved, unearned, unmerited. It's just your wonderful mercy. Lord, let your grace fill our hearts this morning. Let us see, Lord, it's not by our works, but it's by your grace. Let us see today, Lord, that everything is dependent on your grace and mercy. In those times that we feel, and sometimes miserably, Help us to see, Lord, your grace is sufficient to pick us up, to dust us down, to set us on the path again. And now, Lord, as we come to the table this morning, Lord, the greatest example that you could give of your grace was giving your Son to die for us. Extended your mercy to the point where you give his life for our lives. And we bless you for that. And Lord, if you loved us that much, if you showed us that much grace, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more, how much more will you show us grace today? We thank you, Lord. Those who are going to serve the table, if you could come just...